Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. The slums of the big town, as packed with drama and danger as the squalid streets of some native quarter. In the heart of this melting pot of crime stands an oasis where one man struggles against the forces that turn his loved ones to lives of violence and shame. Into this atmosphere walks the most ruthless character you have ever seen on the screen. A killer returning to the slums that nurtured him is the most devastating blast of drama to hit the screen since Public Enemy. Angels with dirty faces. Morning, gentlemen. Nice day for murder. Where's Frazier? Where's that hundred grand? You think we're going to pay off, huh? Certainly. If I don't get that dough in three minutes, Frazier's going to be splashed all over the best hideout in town. Some of these days, you're going to stick your nose and you're going to get something in it. Well, I only thought it was... Shut up! Now, look. You don't know anything about this, see? No, no, I don't know nothing. But you do know what guys get who talk. Sullivan picked me up at my home. He's got everything that was in my safe. Those were scenes from that 1938 classic, Angels with Dirty Faces, and of course that OG original gangster, James Cagney. But on this show, we'll be talking about a different Cagney movie and co-star, and in one of his first films, billed as gang member number one, Frankie Faison, in his first big film, Ragtime, and what would be Cagney's last on the big screen. But Faison, most known for Coming to America, Do the Right Thing, and The Wire on television, will be discussing his latest film that took its toll on him creatively and emotionally, The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, in a tribute to that mentally scarred elderly black veteran, brutally gunned down by Westchester, New York police, busting into his home for an ironic, well, welfare check. And remarkably, Faison just having won as Best Actor at the Gotham Awards, this small film competing against all the flashy, high-profile contenders. But first, with Christmas coming up and the one movie synonymous with that holiday, It's a Wonderful Life, most of the film's stars have passed. But what about those who haven't? Carolyn Grimes, who plays Jimmy Stewart's young daughter in the film, Zuzu Bailey, is our guest on Arts Express and will share memories not only as a central figure in Stewart's life in the film, but what it was like co-starring as well with Betty Grable in Mother Wore Tights and as the little match girl opposite Danny Kaye in Hans Christian Andersen back in 1952. But that was her last green role when the little girl's parents died and she was suddenly orphaned and faded into obscurity when raised by a stern religious fundamentalist aunt who forbade her from singing and dancing. And it was only decades later, when Stewart sent his secretary to find her, that Grimes emerged from the shadows. As for It's a Wonderful Life and her central role as the little girl Zuzu, who saves her father from suicide related to financial debt, in the real world she could not save her own son from suicide and hardly a wonderful life for her, or was it, despite everything? First, some scenes from It's a Wonderful Life, then Carolyn Grimes. Hi, Daddy. Well, what happened to you? I want a flower. Uh, oh, wait now, where do you think you're going? Want to give my flower a drink. All right, all right, I'll give, the, give Daddy the flower, I'll give it a drink. No, here. Look, Daddy.
to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. Please. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Hey, George. George. You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now, get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals! Zuzu... There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas! Merry! Merry! Yay! Hello, and welcome. Well, thank you, Prairie. What are your memories of Jimmy Stewart, co-starring with him in the film? And what was he like on the set? Well, he was very tall. That I remember. He was six feet four... And I'm on his back or in his arms quite a bit. <laughs> and, and I I know he was so gentle. I remember he, um, you know, I'm on his back coming down the stairs, and he's got little Jimmy's hand in, in one hand, and then he's got Mary in the other hand, and I'm hanging on his back, hanging on to his neck as he comes down the stairs. And, you know, I was afraid I would choke him to death or I would fall. And he, he always came down. We did it so many times. He always let me down so gently. And he was just a wonderful, kind gentleman. And what was it like playing in a movie with Betty Grable in Mother Wore Tights in 1947? And what are your memories of her? Well, she had a bit of a temper. <laughs> and uh, I remember <laughs> we children had to stay away from her while she had a a little spell. <laughs> she was a little angry. I remember that. So I was kind of scared of her because I I never been yelled at, you know, seen yelling like that before. Mm. She was pretty angry. But I really, um, I wasn't in that much of the film, so I really didn't have that many experiences with her. And your last movie as a child was as the little match girl in Hans Christian Andersen with Danny Kaye. What are your memories of Danny Kay in that film? Well, Danny Kay was a little short-tempered too. Oh. <laughs> but um <laughs> I did enjoy doing that part because you know they got my face all dirty and and threw a scarf around my head. <laughs> you know? So I kind of liked doing that. That was that was a great hoot for me. Mm. And surprisingly, you know, it took several takes you know so it took quite a little while it took a whole day to do that and that's the way it is in hollywood but it was nice to be on the set because there were a lot of other kids and we had a lot of fun hmm. oh i understand you had never even seen it's a wonderful life until you were tracked down by Stewart's secretary decades later well i actually uh hadn't seen it but i i started getting 
interviews. People came to my door and knocked on my door and asked <laughs> if they could get an interview. I mean, it was just bizarre. And so I thought, wow, that's really something. And then I started getting fan mail. And that was really bizarre. So I thought, well, I better see what this movie's all about. And then Jimmy Stewart did call and look for me. And uh, he had his secretary find me because people had been coming to him and asking, whatever happened to that little girl? So he found out. And that was how we got reunited. What are your feelings about It's a Wonderful Life when you see it today? And in contrast to your own life, where you've experienced so much personal tragedy and not such a wonderful life at times. Well, that's true, but I, like everyone else, watch that film, and it gives me hope, and it makes me feel like there is the best life in the world that I'm having which I don't, I, it gets to a point where you, you know, get down and you get blue, just like George did, and he was on the bridge. And I have felt like that many times, but I watched the film, and it kind of brings me back, and I think, you know, it is a wonderful life. And life is what you make it. So it's up to you to turn it around when things are going bad and to always try to look for the positive in a not-so-good situation. And what is the origin of your screen name, Zuzu? I hear it's a kind of ginger snap cookie that was popular in the early 1900s. That's correct. It's made by the National Biscuit Company, <laughs> and it was called Zuzu's Ginger Snap, made by the by that company, and when, when George comes back from his unborn sequence, he runs up the stairs and he says, Zuzu, my little ginger snap. <laughs> and you're coming up in a sequel, It's a Wonderful Life, the rest of the story. What can you say about that and what you'll be up to? Well, it's, it's a very interesting film because it, it shows the kids grown up and, and various it's it's what happens to the Bailey kids and the Bailey family. And I play uh, the aunt, Zuzu, and um, one of the boys isn't so good. He has problems, and so I eventually die, and I go to heaven, and then I'm the angel, and I come down and kind of fix him up. Uh. And are there any other films you'll be coming up in? No. I'm 80. See, how old am I? I'm 81. <laughs> and It's a Wonderful Life is truly my 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 sole purpose in life, I think. I've been allowed to live this long so that I can share the messages from this wonderful film, and I just feel so honored to have been chosen to be that little girl, Zuzu. And what can people find in your It's a Wonderful Life cookbook and that's new and different about cookbooks. Well, there's trivia. There's a, a question on one page, and then you turn the page, and there's an answer on the other page about the movie. It's, it's trivia about the movie. Each of the recipes are made with uh, interesting names, like the snowy night in Bedford Falls Ice Cake and uh, Roast Potter and Noodles. Mr. Welch is in a stew, beefy feast. There's, it's all different that way. And then there are interviews with the surviving cast members today. And they're um, telling about their lives and their experience in making It's a Wonderful Life. And there's a lot of introductions from different people. And it's, uh, it's just a very informative as well as entertaining and delicious cookbook. <laughs> And among your recipes with mystery names, what, for instance, is 50 cents on the dollar pot roast? Well, it's a, it's a very cheap pot roast. <laughs> Back in the day, you know, we didn't have a lot of money for food, so anything that could be tough meat that could be put in the oven and perhaps baked till it was tender, maybe, uh, we, we tried those things because I was you know, around during that time. And I can remember my mother and father, they kind of ate kind of, you know, 
tough meat and things like that. And I grew up not really liking meat because it was too tough. But those kinds of things people went through back in the day. And um, that was something that was real life. And people, uh, you know, they sort of associated that with um, these recipes. Mm. So they had to improvise. And any last word on your cookbook and on It's a Wonderful Life? Well, the cookbook is more than a cookbook, you know. And so I feel like it's also a tribute to the film Mm. and to the cast that did the film as well as the remaining cast. And um, it shares family love and it shares the real important things that you can draw from It's a Wonderful Life, which are each man's life touches another life, and we all make a difference, and it gives us hope. Mm. So I think they'll find that that's in this little cookbook. Mm. Okay, thank you, Kathy Grimes and Zuzu Bailey. We're calling into our show. Thank you, Prairie. Bye-bye. Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. on Arts Express, we mourn the loss of workers' lives in the Midwest tornadoes in the candle factory and the Amazon warehouse, which could have been avoided had the workers been allowed to keep their cell phones on the premises for just that kind of emergency, or even allowed to go home when danger threatened, or been provided with tornado cellars for safety, compounding a host of inhumane issues already looming at Amazon warehouses. People died to get packages delivered on time. Amazon worker activist Nico House comments on the disaster. The Amazon managerial staff at Edwardville, Illinois, knew that the tornadoes were coming because, well, they admitted they got alerts uh, through various apparatuses like text messages and phone calls. And even more so, Even more so, they had advance notice, not that day, but days ahead. It also probably means that the Amazon managerial staff should have been taking precaution, given that the National Weather Service made it perfectly clear that there was a violent storm system forming in that area. Now, they did not close the facility that day. They didn't even close the facility early that day. This seems to be emblematic of a major problem that has been consistent with Amazon. Working conditions seem to be unbearable for Amazon workers to the point where they are now banding together across the world to combat them. This is not a one-off situation. They were given a couple of days notice about the violent tornadoes in the area. Days, not hours, days. They could have closed early. They could have asked, they could have made an escape plan and say, hey, workers, where are you at in the proximity to Amazon's facility? In this particular case, Larry was only 13 minutes away in an area that didn't get hit hard, according to his girlfriend. And why do they keep these facilities open exactly? To to what? To get the packages where they need to get to on time. 
that's that's what a life was lost for. That's what people were put in danger for, people. Larry Verdon, partner of 13 years with his girlfriend, father of four, lost his life so that Amazon could get you your packages on time instead of a day or two late. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Alessandro Delfanti, an Italian-born professor at the University of Toronto, has just written a new book about Amazon called The Warehouse, Workers and Robots at Amazon. And if you want to understand more about the workings of this predatory mammoth, and you should, it's an excellent primer. Here's the short version of the book. The situation is worse than you probably thought. Amazon is more dangerous than you thought. And they're certainly more evil than you thought. But other than that, actually Delfanti does offer some rays of hope, which I'll discuss later, but it's going to be a very tough war. So Delfanti's main focus is on Italy's largest Amazon warehouse in the city of Piacenza, with the prosaic name of MXP5. While not surprising that an Italian should be focusing on Amazon's operations in Italy, it's a bit of a wake-up call for the rest of us to remind us that Amazon is an international vampire, not just an American one. Beyond Seattle, there are data centers on three continents, and there's a massive network of thousands of warehouses in Europe, North America, and Asia, with planned expansion to South America. And all this is connected by a worldwide network of software and algorithms running on a vast system of Amazon-owned computer networks. The warehouses themselves cover enormous patches of land throughout the world, mainly on what was once prime farmland. And worldwide, Amazon employs over one million workers. What are those workers doing? Well, at MXP5 in Italy, they are fulfilling hundreds of thousands of orders a day sometimes in a busy season, upwards of a million orders a day. And as Delfanti and Marx remind us, under capitalism, commodities must be kept in constant circulation in order to realize their value. And any commodity sitting in a warehouse is value unrealized. So these million workers are receiving and storing goods and then picking them for orders at an ever-increasing rate. They're doing this in tandem with machinery and software algorithms that seek not to make the workers' jobs easier, but rather to maximize their efficiency and productivity no matter what the physical and mental costs are to the workers. In Delfanti's words, robots and software systems intensify labor and make it more dangerous rather than facilitating it. Amazon likes to publicly boast of its technological prowess. Just witness their recent dog and pony show of Jeff Bezos being launched into space. But as capital often does, it works hard to make actual human beings invisible. But the one million plus workforce, of course, is what makes the profits of Amazon possible. And it's human labor under the direction of Amazon technology and software that makes the huge profits possible. As an indication of the kinds of profits we're talking about, take just the recent years during the coronavirus pandemic. At the end of 2020, Bezos could have personally given every single Amazon employee $100,000 and still maintain his wealth at its pre-pandemic level. Robots and software systems intensify labor and make it more dangerous rather than facilitating it. But contrary to sci-fi novels where machines totally replace human labor, the truth of the Amazon trajectory is even more chilling. Workers will remain because they are easier and cheaper to control and discard than robots. 
What Amazon is dreaming of instead is a world where machines and software algorithms find new ways to squeeze even more value out of humans. Del Fanti describes in detail what happens in an Amazon warehouse. To get down to the nitty-gritty, the main instrument of both analysis and control is the barcode scanner, referred to as a gun. Workers pick up a scanner at the beginning of the shift and scan their ID badges. At this point, the software now tells the worker, if the worker is a receiver, where to get the pallets of new shipments that have come in and which shelf to put the items on. Now, when the worker puts the items on the shelf, the worker scans both his name and the position where the item was put. And this info is stored in the main computers. And in an interesting twist of software trickery, unlike what you might expect, like items are never put with like items. Rather, items are stuffed wherever there's room for the item on the shelves for maximum storage efficiency. Items are put in random places, and only the software really knows where a particular item has ended up. And because of the randomness, no worker has been entrusted with the location knowledge, and so workers are replaceable and dispensable and even more alienated from their work, what Delfanti calls dispossession of knowledge. For the pickers, those workers who fulfill the orders, they too are totally controlled by the barcode scanner. The scanner tells them which shelf to retrieve an item from, and in a bout of further alienation, no picker works entirely on one order. So for an entire shift, a worker is doing nothing but looking at the barcode scanner and putting items on shelves or picking items from the shelves. There's no communication with other workers except for brief breaks. To make matters worse, as soon as the scanner gives the worker the assignment, a countdown clock begins on the scanner and workers must complete the assignment within a given time. If they do not, they are subject to discipline and possible firing. There are even, says Delfanti, workers who have gotten notice of their firing through the scanner. The constant movement that a worker does in a day has rough consequences over a period of time. Workers report that by the fourth year on the job, their bodies start to break down from all the twisting, carrying, walking, and stress of keeping up with the time constraints. Your back breaks down, you develop hernias, you develop carpal tunnel syndrome. Amazon's serious injury rate is twice the industry average. If that's not bad enough, workers are also subject not only to physical control, but to psychological and ideological control through the scanners. The scanners constantly surveil their movements, even time in the bathroom, and the scanner display might even pop up with questions like, how do you feel about working at Amazon? One, great. Two, great, I'm proud to work at Amazon. Three, I wish I was working a job using different skills. Four, prefer not to answer. Hmm, I wonder which choice you should pick if you wish to remain working at Amazon. And then there are also the periods of staged fun. The scanners might ask workers to project loving energy. And in gamification scenarios, teams are set to compete against one another for work quotas, though what the goals are are never spelled out. And make no mistake, Amazon is quite aware of the toll the job takes. Amazon's policy with workers is to wear them out and then replace them with new, younger bodies. A bonus of $1,000 for each year of work is given to those who will quit. What is remarkable about Amazon's marketing department is that it is largely aimed not at finding new customers, but finding new workers as it discards the old ones and seeks to replace them from a large pool of reserve labor. The results of such policies are devastating, of course. In Southern California, for example, Belfanti reports that with the advent of Amazon, while it's true that unemployment has dropped, 
the share of people living in poverty has actually increased. But Delfante is hopeful that the very need for such large amounts of labor will eventually lead to union organizing efforts. In MXP5, in fact, the 2017 Black Friday strike eventually led to the unionization of the warehouse. Some of the worst abuses have been mitigated, though Amazon sidesteps much of the union by hiring large number of temporary workers who are subject to very few protections. Here in the U.S., where Amazon is not unionized at all, we saw the stirrings of some union activity this most recent Black Friday, and a judge has just ruled that Amazon's union-busting tactics were so egregious in an Alabama warehouse that the union is entitled to a revote. This is all good news, no doubt. But I have to say I am much more pessimistic than Delfanti, and here's why. As Delfanti explains in his book, Amazon's e-commerce business is not even the main profit center for Amazon. Amazon is also a web server business. Through their cloud computing services and web servers called Amazon Web Services, they provide the backbone for other key internet-dependent services. Zoom runs its entire business on Amazon servers. Netflix runs its whole business on Amazon servers. Immigrants are tracked down by ICE through Amazon's computers as well. Through Amazon's networked Ring Home surveillance services, large amounts of camera and voice data are captured and then sold to local law enforcement agencies. As Delfanti explains, for every dollar Amazon spends on its e-commerce business, it receives 10 times the return for each dollar spent on its web services. And puzzlingly, Delfanti does not talk at all about the government contracts that Amazon has. Now, a brief search on the internet shows contracts with the Pentagon about to be awarded to Amazon for vast data servers called, quote, tactical edge devices that can operate outside of traditional data centers and support all levels of data classification. Then there's another Amazon contract with the military for software that would allow drones to better recognize their targets. And still another $10 billion contract for the National Security Agency, the NSA, nicknamed Wild and Stormy, intended to modernize the agency's classified data storage. In the face of this, it's not at all clear to me what impact warehouse workers alone can have on the existence of Amazon. Traditional labor actions may eventually extract better pay and working conditions, which is nothing to sneeze at, I suppose. But on the other hand, it does little to stop the Amazon juggernaut. Amazon, like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and to a lesser extent, Apple, short of a revolution, can only be stopped by the breaking up of such wealthy and powerful entities into smaller ones and outlawing the existence of unaccountable corporate giants. If we do not do so, then the future is bleak indeed. I've been talking about Alessandro Delfanti's new book, The Warehouse, Workers and Robots at Amazon, published by Pluto Press. I highly recommend it. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. First ones to stop, we're the first ones to die. The first ones in line for that pie in the sky. And we're always the last when the crime is shed out. For the worker is working when the fat counts above. We're the first ones to stop.
And now on Arts Express. ID for the resident here? Copy 87. Marine Corps ID Alpha Roger 16467830. Mr. Chamberlain, we spoke to your sister and she's aware of what's happening. Miss, Mr. Chamberlain, are you there? Hi, sir. Can you hear me? The, the police are still outside my door. They got my ID now. Mr. Chamberlain, do you want me to call and cancel the dispatch? Yes. White Plains Police. <clears throat> We're here for a welfare check. Open this door! You're not coming to my home. Help me! Help me! I need help! And those were horrific scenes from the brutal police murder in his own home in 2011 of elderly black veteran Kenneth Chamberlain after his medical alert bracelet went off and the cops stormed his house. Frankie Faison stars in the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain in a phenomenal performance which just earned him Best Actor at the Gotham Awards, a small production and competition against big-budget films. And now Frankie Faison describes being part of this film and this police victim's tragic life and death in the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, along with his participation next in another grueling racism crime, the dramatic feature Till, based on the life and horrific death of Emmett Till. First, Morgan Freeman, who executive produced The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, describes what drew him in along with words from Kenneth Chamberlain's son, Kenneth Chamberlain, Jr. I'm black. People don't seem to realize that or recognize that. But being so and raised in the South, I, I watched the impunity with which uh, black men, young men, have been killed by law enforcement. And I, I go all the way back to just plain old lynchings. Here comes the George Floyd situation that we all watched. And now this is a real serious dramatist of how wrong that approach is from law enforcement. Uh, and I think all we think the best thing we can do 
is sensationalize it. It's bigger than Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. It's not just about my father, it's about the George Floyds. Um, even in White Plains, New York or Westchester County, I've always said that Westchester County has its own George Floyd. You have names out there that people don't know about. When people ask me what my motivation is or what pushes me, this is what pushes me because I don't want any other family to have to experience what my family has gone through. It was a, a masterful performance. I know, frankly, from, oh, my goodness, we go back to the Dungeon Theater and off-off-Broadway and off-Broadway Theater in New York. Every now and then, an actor gets a part that he just, or she just channels. And I think that uh, in this situation, that was Frankie channeling Kenneth. Here in Mississippi, uh, at University of Mississippi, we started a program of police reform, teaching it, uh, having a whole new department to deal with law enforcement and how that should work. Uh, we don't start something now. It, it, you know, it's just like everything else. It just sort of rolls along. That phrase they have, kicking the can down the road. It's sort of what we do, and we got to get much busier. Hello there. How are you this morning? Hello, and welcome to our show. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from New Jersey. Okay. What led you to want to take on the role of Kenneth Chamberlain and honor this man and police victim in a movie? Well, the thing that made me, led me to take on the role was there was sent the script, and I read the script, and I thought it was a brilliant script. I'm an actor who loves to do... Uh, you know, roles that are of, of significance. Uh, I mean, we all do, but I mean, I particularly gravitate towards stories and character. And I read this story and I said, my God, this man, what he went through is a story that needs to be told and it needs to be told right. And I just, the film was so well written by David Fidel and um, he directed it as well. But he, you know, it, you, you, you can't help, if you're an actor, worth your salt. If you get a script like this, you want to do that character. It's, 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 it's powerful. It taxes everything that you are as a person and as an actor. You've got to delve so deep into this that it will tear your heart right out of your body. It's intense. It's very intense. It was well worth every moment that I spent with this man and this film. And have you ever felt anything like that in your own life? Racist terror? No, never in my life. Never, never, never. And I just, I guess I've been very fortunate, you know, and just like I said to other people, you know, being a person, you know, I've been acting for over 50 years and being invisible, having a visibility like that. I think that the way that I'm viewed by uh, police officers, law enforcement officers, and the way that other people are is quite different. They sort of give me a buy, a little bit of a pass because, you know, it's, Frankie Faison, this, this is this actor. We saw him in this, you know, he's, you know, he, yeah, just let him go. I mean, you know, I've been, you know, but um, most people don't get that. Most people, they, when they're, when they're, when they're um, entertained, stopped by law enforcement offices, they're looking for, looking at them mostly as, as criminals, some sort of criminal thing they're doing. They're doing something wrong. So I've never had the experience and, um, you know, I would never wish for, but I know a lot of the law enforcement officers. I've played so many uh, in my various career, and um, I just—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's a shame that this—that we would have to make a film like this to highlight uh, what can and needs to be done, so that something like this will not happen again. It's happened far too many times over the last five to ten years. You know, you see things that. And they all end up very badly, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's. Uh, I hope that this film can help in that in that regard because we don't need defunding. We need education, and uh, to see a man's last ninety minutes on this earth 
you know, depicted as Kenneth Chamberlain is depicted in this film, maybe that'll make people understand that it's a terror, it's a anxiety, it's 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 horrific what you can be going through if you have to have that kind of combative confrontation with someone on the other side who's sent there to protect you. But they've got the guns, they got the bads, they got the numbers. So uh that's my hope and that's my dream and that's certainly one of the reasons that I um, am doing did this film and I'm speaking so 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 easily about, you know, what the purpose of the film is. And what did it mean to you to have just won his best performance at the Gotham Awards among all those flashy high profile movies? <laughs> well, it's uh it's very humbling. In a way it's very humbling, but in a way it's uh this is what I do. I mean, I've committed myself to acting for over 50 years, and I've committed myself in every single project I do. I give 150%. And uh, for someone to recognize that because of this film, you know, I, I feel very honored. And, you know, but uh, even more than what it does for me uh, personally, you know, per, you know um, personal satisfaction, I guess, or whatever, uh, it, I feel that it does more for the film because they look at this and say Frankie Faison, uh, Gotham Award winner for um, Outstanding Actor. Well, let's see what this film, what, what he's doing, what this thing is all about. So that will hopefully bring more people into the seats to see the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, which is the thing that got me there to, you know, to win that reward, that award. Now, you're also coming up in the dramatic film Till, based on another race murder and horrific torture of a young boy, Emmett Till. What led you into that production, and what are you up to in the film? Well, this, you know, it was about a year after I did Kenneth Chamberlain that I got a call, a request, uh, that they wanted me to do the Emmett Till story, and I thought about it, and I'm saying, uh, Look, I've just, I know what I poured into doing the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. I said, I'm not, I don't know if I'm physically strong and able to go into doing another piece of that magnitude. And, but uh, they kept coming at me and they kept saying, we want you, we need you. You kind of have to come and do this film. And so I acquiesced and I said, okay. And I'm glad that I did because even though, I mean, I don't carry the, the Emmett Till story the way I did The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, but it's uh, just being in that environment telling that story. It will just sure. it'll just knock the, knock the air out of your body for a long time. Yeah. And um, these stories, one took place in 1955 and the other one took place in 2011. And uh, I feel that they're both so intriguing and interesting that the stories are similar and, you know, and that the results, the outcome <laughs> for both of them are pretty similar as well because there's been no accountability for the officers who committed the atrocity uh, with Kenneth Chamberlain. And, of course, with Emmett Till, they just opened the case and they closed it and they didn't move any farther further in given accountability by anyone in that film. And the only person who's still living was the woman who made the accusation and uh, she's older and but it's accountability is what we're looking for so mm. it's like it's I'm, I was thrilled to do the Emmett Till even though it took a lot out of me too so yeah and early on in one of your first films you appeared in Ragtime as gang member one and along with James Cagney that OG original gangster what was he like and your memories of him Oh my goodness! Yeah, I think it was his last film, and ah. it was sort of like my first, you know. And oh, it was such a joy to to meet him. I mean, I'm standing with an icon, you know, that guy that I, you know, just bigger than life. And to me, that was that was one of the greatest thrills of my life, you know, just to work with him and to get a chance to talk to him. And he was just, you know, his health was not the best at that time, but. Um, he did, you know, we did get a chance to have a few words together and it just, he gave me, he gave me some of the best advice that I've ever received from a 
from an actor, which is <laughs> he's like um, he's he's because you see him in the film in Ragtime, he's always surrounded by people because they sort of had to hold him up because, like I say, he was in poor health, and he was saying, you know, he he, he was saying that he used to be the young guy like we were who would mm-hmm. you know who would go out there and run down and chase him blah blah blah, but now he's the old guy and he sits in his office and he says to the young boys, go get him. You guys go get him. You know he doesn't have to do that. So I now that I'm a I'm, I'm sort of in that age range and near that area. I'm not quite as old as he was, but I love to tell young actors. I say, look, I I don't do all this um, this this I don't do all this stunt stuff and just chasing down and running around and stuff anymore. I just sit behind my desk and I say, boys, go get him. <laughs> And would you say he's as mean as his characters off screen? Oh, he's, <laughs> most of the most of the characters, actors who are depicted as being horrible, mean, terrible people in real life, they're sweet as uh, they're sweet as candy. They are just so sweet; it's uh, it, it's it's amazing. And that's the that shows why they're such brilliant actors because they can delve deep in their their souls to find that thing. That mean gene, we all have that meanness in some place. It's just a matter of finding it and bring it to the surface so that people, so that it can serve you and the characters that you play. Okay, thank you so much, Frankie Faison, for calling into our show. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Killing us, Kenneth Chamberlain, it's to be heard from. <laughs> Bye-bye. And The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain is out now in release. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express expression in the arts and if you'd like to express yourself too you can write to us at the radio goddess at gmail.com until next time this is prairie miller leaving the station